tonight. An 80s all over exclusive interview with the star of Better Off Dead, Bill and Ted, and The Last American Virgin, Diane Franklin. And now, your hosts, Drew McWeeny and Scott Weinberg. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Patreon episode of 80s All Over. I am joined, as always, by my illustrious co-host, Mr. Drew McWeeny. Drew, how are you? I'm good. It's crazy rainy in Los Angeles. And for the first time in a while, sitting here in the 80s All Over studio, I can't see the Nakatomi Plaza from my window. Uh, We were just briefly talking, and and I, I think that the reason that our guest tonight stood out in the 80s is that she kind of bucked the convention. She was not either the statuesque blonde. She was not the frumpy girl next door who turned out to be cute when you looked at her in a certain light. She was a unique presence in the 80s landscape, and we are elated to sit down and talk to Miss Diane Franklin. Hello. Hello. You're both totally excellent. (laughs) We are going to start off with her cinematic debut, a film that in most worlds, might have just vanished as yet another mindless, forgettable teen sex comedy. But there is something a bit more substantial and a bit more bittersweet about The Last American Virgin. Diane, I would love to know your take on that film and that ending all these years later. Oh, my goodness. I have so many things to say about that film. When you're talking about, uh, you know, sex teen comedies, Virgin was the first one. Um, And what I mean by that is it was in 1982, that film actually was made. I mean, although it came out the same time as um, Fast Times at Richmond High, we did it first and uh, we shot it first. And when it came out, this was the beginning of teenagers playing teenagers. Whereas before, say in the 70s, they would have adults playing teenagers. You mean like in Greece where everybody's 44? It's like, what? I know, like, like Carrie, they, they, you know, they just always seemed older. But in Virgin and all this, we were all, like, really young. And uh, and then the next thing was that Virgin was, is a, um, if you don't know Last American Virgin, it is a time capsule of 80s information. The look and the style is 80s. That's including my hair, which actually kickstarted the curly hair craze of the 80s. I kid you not. My <laughs> hair, I wrote a book about it, and it's on Amazon's Excellent Curls of the Last American French Exchange Babe of the 80s. If you look oh, at that book, you'll find it. Is that funny? That's funny. You, I did not, I'm going to find that book. I did not know you were an author. That's hilarious. That book was about how curly hair became considered beautiful. Because in Last American Virgin, I played this girl who was the dream girl. You would never have a dream girl that wasn't blonde and tan, you know, and it came from like the Farrah Fawcett 70s, you know, winged hair, curly hair was considered bushy. It would be given to the girl who didn't get the guy. It would be given to the best friend. And so for years, I wasn't getting work because I didn't fit the look, the mold. But when I did Virgin, all of a sudden, because I was portrayed as a dream girl in that film, the girl the white guy wants to get... All these guys suddenly saw dark, curly hair as beautiful, and they went out and looked for all these dark-haired, beautiful girls. And what happened was I went from not being able to get a part. I, I acted 10 years before Virgin hit. I did commercials and soap opera and theater, but I always straightened my hair. But the minute Virgin came out, I'm getting lead after lead with curly hair. You get Julia Roberts with that beautiful, dark, curly hair, mystic pizza. You get... 
flash dance. Um, you had dirty dancing. One of the things that really stood out for somebody who was that age to see these movies and sort of be impacted by them at the first time is so many of them are consequence free. And the thing that Virgin and Fast Times both have going for them is that they are movies where there's responsibility attached to these things. I love that the films, uh, first of all, are a perspective of the kids. So you're seeing what they're going through. You rarely see the parents in these films. Um, it's just all of what the kids are going through. And the kids are going through adult-like experiences. In Last American Virgin, there is nudity, and there's um, drugs, and there's drinking, and there's abortion. You know, there are issues, okay? And um, it's just the American version was ha- Fast Times, which gave a happy ending. But Virgin was created by um, an Israeli director and Israeli company, and, and the Last American Virgin was based on a true story. It really happened. This story really happened from beginning to end to Boaz Davidson. And this is well, a remake of a movie, Lemon Popsicle, which was an Israeli film. So this is real life, this movie. Did you guys see the Israeli film before you began? Because that that was it's one of those things. Their, their background as filmmakers and how they started internationally and then came here, I think it's really inspirational. Whether you like their movies or not, these are guys who very clearly were desperate to break into the American market and figured out something that no one here was doing, which was that sort of very honest coming-of-age thing. I think because uh, Lemon Popsicle was such a huge success overseas, I think they didn't have a doubt that it would be successful in some way. But I have to tell you, when I got the script for Last American Virgin, I mean, at the time, in the early 80s, I looked at the script and thought, here's a film I would love to play a lead in. I mean, at first I was kind of going, oh, is this soft core or is this real? What is this, right? And, and as a young woman, I just was kind of like, is this worth it to me? But because it was a lead and because the girl was portrayed so it, it, with reverence, you know, the guys were like in love with her, I said, okay, I'm going to do this film, but I'm going to give it heart and I'm going to give it like my version, you know, of how to portray the character. Um, but what was so fascinating to me is we all, when we got the scripts, thought we're going to change its ending. Like, this is just not going to, this is not going to We're going to change it. And we all, all of us, like Lawrence to Kimmy and uh, Steve, Anton, and we were all like, we're going to change this ending. We get there and Boaz says, no, this is the way the ending is. This is my life. I have to do this this way. And during that time, there were huge movies, like Officer and a Gentleman. Like, people would pay yeah. money yeah. to see just heavy-duty films. So, it is shocking to me that I have gone through the stages of this film where people were watching it and then they passed it on to the next generation and then it played at Lincoln Center and then it was like, I'm like, and then people are like, oh my God, now this is a film where you know film students did watch and they're watching it in college classes and I'm sitting there thinking, how did this happen? This is a true example of the little film, the little guy who makes an, an independent feature and then like is a hero. And you know what, Diane, when people talk about this movie, that ending is almost always what they talk about first. This movie would have been forgotten had it not had that ending. Yep. And did it like when you saw it all cut together, did that, uh, you know, you were about the appropriate age for this movie. Did that affect you? Like, did you feel like, damn, that's honest? Um, No, I didn't think of it as honest um, at the time. Which is really funny. I remember feeling like I wanted my work to be honest and very real and very raw. But I didn't know if people would understand it. And I think that I was afraid that maybe I would get people like, you know, trying to come on to me. And like, I was a little bit more shy about it during the time. But as time passed, 
now when people say to me, oh, I love this film, and I grew up with this film, and, <clears throat> and I loved you in the film, I so get it. Diane, how long did it take for you to realize, oh, wow, this movie actually affected people in an emotional way? You know, I would say not that long ago. I made this when I started doing, um, I do con- signing conventions. And made, that's probably about 10 years ago I started. And people come up to me in, when I do conventions and they tell me about how they feel and how they, their experience was and how it affected their life and their childhood. You know, I had one guy, which is, uh, is a classic story, a guy, he was so traumatized by that film. And I, we were, I was in a line with a bunch of other actors uh, from the film. We were, all came together for a reunion. And he walks down from actor to actor, and I'm at the end. And all the other actors are looking at me like, this guy has lost it. He really is. He really thinks this is a real film and this is this really happened. So the guy comes down to me and I see him and he says to me, I would never have done what you did. I can't believe you did that. That was horrible. <laughs> you were a terrible person and I can't believe you did. And he really meant it. I mean, he lost, you know, he was like lost in the imagination. And I just looked him in the eyes and I just said, you're right. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. And he just went, thank you. And he walked away. (laughs) He had closure. He had closure. He wanted closure. On one hand, that's kind of cute. On the other hand, it's kind of creepy. Yes, terrifying. (laughs) One of the things that this show, that doing this show has sort of really educated me on is how connected people are to certain films. And I think a lot of it is when they see them. And a lot of it is because of the extra life around that film like the film is one thing but it's when people walk up to you and they tell you these stories about why the film is connected so often it's because it also connects to something outside the movie and we're really learning almost every film that we cover is somebody's favorite movie somebody has some attachment to it and it teaches you to treat these films with respect it's funny you say that um junk Cusack, god bless him i love him he's not a big fan of better off dead I love Better Off Dead. I mean, oh. you could talk about day and night. I love that film. Um, I think it's funny. I, I was felt very fortunate to be in it. I loved my character. I think it was the most best role modeling for a young girl there is. I get girls. They were to be the French film. So I play Monique Jonon. I don't exist. So if you remember, as the international language. And, uh, um, Beautiful. And, <laughs> I honestly, as a kid, I thought you were French. <laughs> And that's, that's what it should be. You know, today it's very hard. You see people and they, you know so much about their personal life and then you forget, like you watch them as actors as opposed to the story. And that's what I love. I love the fact that people may not, they were like, oh, who's that French girl? She's really good. Like, essentially that is like my character. Um, it's great. I'm so happy that I just sort of became that person and you lost track of me as an actress. I do think the other side of that, though, Diane, is that for people who grew up in the 80s and for who the 80s were a significant decade, there are actors who they feel very protective of or very um, possessive of in some ways. And I and I don't mean that in a bad way, but just these are the actors that were important to them at important times. Movies like Better Off Dead and Last, Vir- Last American Virgin, those are landmarks that people had in their adolescence. So they remember them very strongly. Exactly. I- and 
we are basically the first generation where you can watch it over and over again. Yeah. The generation of the 70s was, you know, people in the 70s are now, you know, they're older, like 10 years older. They're, they were maybe just at the edge of all this internet, um, you know, this internet explosion where you could watch anything whenever you wanted. In a different era, a film like Last American Virgin could come out, play theaters, people could like it, and then be gone. For good, that's it, end of story. Yeah, well, that happened with a lot of TV stuff, too. I mean, some things you're getting to see again if you want to watch them. But if you were a star in a TV show and nobody saw that show, no, that's over. Right, where is that show? It's almost yeah, like entertainment wasn't permanent. It was more ephemeral. And I do think that our, the VHS and HBO generation, and it's so funny because people will mention movies that they don't even know if they like them. All they know is they saw it 57 times on HBO. So it's built into their DNA now. You know, it's their memories of life. So, for as an example, John Cusack, which I and I adore him. You know, he for a while, and I don't know if he's still doing this, but he was saying, "Oh, better off dead." You know, I don't want to talk about her. That's not my film for whatever reason. You know, that's his business. Fans were fe- feeling very assaulted by that because they were saying, "Wait a minute, that's my favorite film. How could you not like that? How could you say that that was something?" that you could even talk to me about, you know? So he, I think he's starting to understand that this isn't about him. This is about the world around him and what these films meant to the people who watched them. Yeah, Cusack, is, uh, he's been a little prickly about some of his older, less, uh, less uh, fancy projects, but m- without movies like Better Off Dead... He's so enduring in these films. I mean, he gained his audience at that time, and now they're willing to follow him. And I don't well, know if he ever realized that. that that's, you know, that's why they watch The Raven. That's why they watch, you know, a lot of the other films. Not to say that that's the only thing, but there were that, that made him endearing. Those characters made him the every guy, and we all identified with him, and we just wanted, we knew, we knew somebody like him. Oh, I, I always, I really admired the John Cusack archetype when I was young. I did. I liked the long coat and the sarcastic attitude, and he was respectful, but not an ass kisser. And you want to talk about a different way into sort of the teen comedy. Um, I Here's another project where I've got to imagine up front, it's not the easiest thing to picture because you've got the animation element. You've got sort of a tone that Savage Steve Holland pulls off that I don't know if that necessarily would come across the first time you talk to him or read it. Can you talk about, first of all, what is a Savage Steve Holland? Because I have a picture in my head and I'm betting it's not right. No, he's blonde. Uh, blonde haired, blue eyes, um, super duper sweet. And I've heard nothing but amazing things from his crew about Savage. Uh, that's when I found very interesting. I, I've talked to my daughter because she is a filmmaker now. She's actually making her first film this year, and I'll tell you about that. But awesome. I said to her, I want you to be like Savage in the way that he is with his crew. You check in, you make sure everyone's okay. You don't like just, you know, you don't assume that everyone's going to do what they think. Savage was just, he, as a director, great. And I, and the Savage was just a nickname. He's just a super, super sweet guy. Um, and he's still, he's still doing stuff. And I love working with him. I've worked with him several times and um, I hope to work with him again. And I just, but better off dead was like a jewel that dropped in my lap after doing um, all these films where there's always something gratuitous in the sense of nudity or gratuitous violence or there's gratuitous language or whatever, something. Um, and by the way, all that was to get people in the theaters. You had to do something outside of TV to get people out of their houses to the theater. Well, now, Here Comes Better Off Dead didn't have any of that. It was just funny. It was so funny. So all the actors who read it were flipping out because 
they thought, wait a minute, I actually would go see this movie. I think this is hilarious. Um, and even Vincent Schiavelli, Schiavelli, who played the teacher in the film, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He wanted to do it. It's like David Ogden Steyer. I mean, oh, my gosh. Like, these people were greatly, uh, classically trained, established actors, and they were thrilled and excited to do it. Talk a little bit about how much fun it was to work with Amanda Wiss. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Amanda Wiss is one of my best friends. I love her. Uh, we are still friends to this day. And um, actually, in the 80s, we were really close. Um, and we were friends. I was friends with her and Heather Langenkamp. It was like um, we were all young actresses, but it was sort of like you all go to school together. Like we'd see each other in auditions, and then sometimes we get together. And so we were like high school friends. That's the way it seemed, you know. And then everyone goes off and does their different, you know, jobs and careers. Um, Elizabeth Daly, she's my friend. E.G. E.G. Daly is wonderful. Oh, we'd love to get her for the show, too. Oh, she's awesome. She's uh, like a great friend, so I can have you. Please do. Uh, most people know uh, E.G. Daly, of course, from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. An icon. But she, yeah, an icon. She's been in dozens of good films, yeah. Oh, she and her, her, and her voice is amazing. Oh, she, she sings in Better Off Dead, but she also yep. does voiceover. Tremendous talent. Just just such a talent. Um, and it's, I got to say, so nice being uh, in the business now as an adult and still seeing the actresses that I've spent, you know, that I've known from the 80s and they're still acting. You know, maybe they co we come in and out of our career to, to have life, but what a joy. I just watched a movie the other day with young Pamela Adlin, which blew my mind. And I love it. I love survivors. I love people who reinvent themselves and who find ways. And the voice acting thing is a terrific world that I think sets actors free to be actors again. It's one of the reasons I love the digital sort of mocap world. Removed from the sort of burden of what we are locked into looking like, you can really be and do anything. And I think it's given a lot of actors a second, third, fourth life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, think of, um, well, I was just going to say, you know, Nancy Cartwright, who plays Bart Simpson. Yeah. We did a movie of the week called Deadly Lessons, and she was an on-screen actress. And then, you know, here she goes and creates this whole amazing character. That's a boy, which is even better. Like, wow, you know, you can do anything. So, I got to say, it's very exciting for me to see actors and actresses of my age like, who are still working. Um, I never thought that I was going to be acting. I never, I mean, I thought, oh, the 80s were my thing and that was it. But then when my daughter started uh, wanting to make movies and she needed me to act in it, and then I sort of did, dabbled in it for her. Like I would play a mother or a grandmother. I'd play anything she wanted. Um, and then it got me to the next level. And Next month, I have a film coming out, Amityville Murders. Mazel tov. What's weird, you might be the only woman to star in two Amityville films. So I was playing the daughter in Amityville 2, The Possession. Mm -hmm. And the director, Daniel Ferrans, loved that movie. And he's the writer-director, and he wrote Amityville Murders, and he called me and asked me to play this role of, oh. he asked me, would you play Louise DeFeo, the mother now? And I burst into tears. Oh my gosh, I would love to. First of all, to be brought back, I think I'm the only actress who's ever played mother and daughter in the same storyline and died twice, right? <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert, but, you know, it is coming out February 8th. It's going to be in selected theaters across the country, and it's uh, exclusively on iTunes. Oh, good. And you know what the timing is? This episode will be out right, right before that, so perfect timing. Yeah, and can I just say this? This is the best acting I have done in my entire life in this film. 
I mean, you may love me in Virgin. You may love me in Better Off Dead. And I understand that. I totally get that. But this is my best performance. So for whatever it's worth, I highly recommend you see it because you, I did not recognize myself in the film. It's interesting that that story has retained sort of a hold on people's imagination. Um, when you guys did the sequel, it already felt like, okay, so let's go back and let's tell the story of what happened in the house before the other family, because that at least we can verify. And that's a real thing. And it's a, it's a horribly sad story. So now you're going back and you're exploring it again. What is it? What, what was it about this, the material that drew this filmmaker to it and that you saw an opportunity in playing Karen again or in playing the, the mother this time? I grew up in Long Island. I grew up like a couple of towns over. Um, I was probably like 11 years old when this all happened. Um, but this is a true story. And the house is built on Indian burial ground. So there's three levels. There's Indian burial ground. Then this murder happened. Then there were actually some other murders that actually also happened in the Amityville house as well, in the same house. And then the Lutzes moved in. Okay, so like there's like a lot of stuff going on. Or maybe the murders happened after the Lutzes left. But there were several murders that happened in that house. Okay? So when we did... So when Daniel decided to write this movie, Amityville Murders, he already actually did the documentary about Amityville Murders. So when he decided to make this movie, we were, we're calling it like a docudrama because it's based on more fact, but yet it, it's, it's a dramatic story. So it's very scary. It's, if you like blood gushing and eyeballs popping out, this is not your film. This is really scary. Like, you know when you're scared or so, when, like, you know, it's like the creeps, the things that, like, you don't see that get scary. And, you know, sometimes you see a little bit too much of something. This is what this film is. It's a little, it's very scary for me as an actress. Wow, what an experience to be the daughter and go through the experience as the daughter in the family, seeing everything, having this happen to me. And then now the mother. Whoa, crazy. It was just, yeah. uh, it was a, such a trip. It was, a, what an experience. I had so many stories in particular. Um, but, you know, I, again, I just have to say, you know, it's, it is, um, that it's one of the wonderful things. You were talking about Amanda Wiss, and she did this movie, The Id. And I'm telling you, this girl did an a, a Academy Award-winning performance in this movie called The Id. If you get a chance to see it, I am so proud of her. She just blew me away. So I think you're going to get a lot of good performances. Super great. Drew, before we get off Better Off Dead, I just have to ask, given the raucous nature of the movie, was that a fun shoot or was it very businesslike? Oh, it was the most fun set ever. We would do scenes, and the and the crew would be watching. I mean, everybody, Savage would be watching. And at a certain point, you'd see the entire crew, everybody turning their face away. You know, like when you see something, and they, like, they turn their heads, and they have to hold their mouth? And I'd see shaking. Their bodies would be shaking. <laughs> and it was like, it was so fun. We would, like, just try to stay focused. But we would have to shoot things like, you know, five five scenes over, you know, like, do five takes because other people were laughing. It was so funny. It was just a killer. Good, and good. It seems like it was, it feels like it was a fun movie to make, but you can never tell for sure from... No, that's just, right. <laughs> and that was because Savage set the tone. You know, I think he was only 24 when he directed that. 24. But he let the actors, he let us, uh, he let all of us sort of own our characters and he trusted our gut. He let us do our sort of improv that we wanted to. You know, a lot of the nonverbal things came from the actors. And I love that because it made the actors feel very free and very happy to work on set. He, he, uh, he was enjoying it, you know, and I think especially doing a comedy as the director, the director sets the tone. Every good comedy set I've ever been on, one of the things that I is very clear is when you're playing with somebody in a scene and they have a great 
sense of play and they are throwing the ball to you and you throw it back, it just gets better and better the 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 more you are willing to play. So when you've got guys like Curtis Armstrong, who I think has an insane sense of timing, Curtis Armstrong's got one of those ears where he knows where the joke is. He can find it. Um, and Cusack is the same way. And I think you're and I think you're terrific with them in the movie. And it's a case where I think everybody in that movie is throwing heat. And it it shows that it's if you play, you get it. Everybody gets to play. It's a it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch when actors connect and click. Um, and I totally agree. And it's it's uh, magic. That's what makes magic in cinema. I mean, I really feel that when you you know, when you're. When you know your character so well and you enjoy it so well, that that game, that ball playing game, will happen. I mean, it's just it's and it's, yeah. I agree. It's, I just totally agree. It's magical. Let's talk very briefly uh, about a a film that you made for Charles Band called Terror Vision. Yes. Oh my God. Terror Vision. Oh gee. <laughs> <laughs> like like. I you want to talk about films. I never would have thought would become a cult favorite. I saw this on VHS back in the day, what, 80 minutes long, if that, completely forgot about it. And then if you bring it up on Twitter, you will find six, seven, 12 people who go, well, look at that cast. That cast is a murderer's row. Yeah, I love You've got this. Garrett Graham. You've got Mary Warrenov. You've got Jonathan Grease. You've got you. I mean, that's a pretty great set. It's a cult. It's such a cult movie. And I, I have to say, when we did that film, we all thought it was hilarious. We made it in the late 80s. I think it was 86. Some of say 89, but I think it was 86. And we, it was, it was making fun of the 80s in the 80s. So making, making fun, it was like, you know, I was playing the Valley Girl slash punk rocker slash um, uh, Cindy Lauper-esque. Right. Kind of a satire of, of three different stereotypes. Yeah. Right. It was. A, um, and, and everybody knew it. We all knew it. Ted Nikolai knew it. And we thought this was going to be, now here's an example. We really thought that movie would be huge, huge, because we thought this is so obvious, right? This is like, um, but because it came out in the 80s, yep. nobody yep. got it. <laughs> Drew, what's that, old, uh, what's that old quote? Satire is what closes on Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rarely appreciated in its age. It's mostly appreciated afterwards. Live action cartoon. Oh, I'm looking for it. I have not seen it since 87 or 88. I can't wait to revisit it for the show. I'm really honestly looking forward to it. <laughs> There's an actor in the movie who I want to ask you about who I think is a terrific comedian who doesn't get her due often. Um, did you work with Randy Brooks at all on the film? I met her, but I didn't wind up working with her. Uh, I think she's terrific. And she was great. I mean, again, super nice, super fun. Uh, and then the, the guy from The Flying Nun, he was in there, too. Um, but, um, yes, Randy is lovely, and she is really funny. I didn't get to see her scenes, but here's a funny piece of information. This film probably should have been rated PG-13. Um, of course, Randy, she looked great. You know, she wore a little tiny bikini and stuff. But what happened was the art department, on the, we shot it in Rome, believe it or not, <laughs> Rome. And we get there in the Rome of uh, the, the Italians. <laughs> Uh, did the set design, and they were told um, by Ted that they, it was a sex palace. Like, we wanted to look like a sex palace. But, but <laughs> Ted was like, make it a sex palace, but he didn't explain exactly what to make that, what that was. So all the art in the film is of nude bodies. 
nude women, nude everything. So the problem is they could never make it a PG-13 because the minute you see the film, you see all these nude, these nude bodies. And you're like, uh, oh, my yeah. God. So, you know, it would have been a great mystery science theater film to me. So is the actor you were thinking of Mr. Alejandro Ray? Yes, Alejandro Ray, thank you. Yes, Alejandro no Ray, I grew up watching him on The, on the, uh, the Flying Nun. I couldn't believe I was doing a film with Alejandro Ray. Do you still get that, Diane? If, like, if you're st- if you're uh, on a set and you look over and it's somebody that you admired when you were young, are you still just like pinch me? I am. I am uh, that little girl in Long Island who who grew up watching TV. I am that little one who, which is really what got me to want to be an actress, is watching TV. And I I decided at four years old I want to be on TV. I want to do it. All right. Now, then you had took a couple of years off, I assume, to get some get educated and finish school. And then you bounce back with a tiny little comedy that people may have heard of starring Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. Talk a little bit about how you read the script, how you got the job, what the shoot was like. Talk about Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Well, of course, I played the English princess. And um, when I went into the, the audition, I actually was actually not going for the princess. I thought I was going for the uh, Joan of Arc part uh, because she was French and I had just finished Better Off Dead or, or pretty much uh, was around yeah. there. So I thought, of course, I'm going to play a French woman. Um, but then, of course, when I went in, I didn't realize it, but Joan of Arc has no lines. Nope. So they had no reason to have someone. And who did they? Uh, it was Jane it's Whedlin. Jane Whedlin, yeah. Rockstar, yeah. So yeah. it was more about the look. So then, and I think maybe they might have been considering me for Missy. I don't know. But then all of a sudden. Um, no, that would not have. Nope. You're not a Missy. <laughs> that would not have worked. Um, so somebody said, hey, what about the princess? And they said, can you do an English accent? I said, of course I can do an English accent. And started to talk like this to them. And, and they were like, oh, you know, oh, my goodness. Great. So um, I went home. And then the next day I was like, oh, well, you're the princess. And I was like, the princess. I didn't even. There was no, like. There were princesses, but they didn't have them actually. Um, it wasn't like a big part. It was the beginning and the end. So I was like, who are the princesses? All right, we'll just do this. So uh, so I wound up shooting uh, the script. We went to Arizona to shoot an ending, which didn't get wind up being in the film. It was a separate ending. Of Actually, the boys do take us to the prom, which is really fun. <laughs> we went to the prom, but they decided they didn't want the movie to end. So somewhere, somehow, there's secret footage somewhere of the end of the film. I'm going to have to bother Ed Solomon on Twitter about that. And then the other thing was, uh, then I did, then we went to Rome to shoot the castle that was supposed to be England. So um, I went with Kimberly uh, LaBelle, who uh, today her name is Kimberly Cates, but back then she, her last name was LaBelle. And we played the princesses. And I'm so excited because um, we had a blast. And the guys were so nice. And... Um, Oh, come on. You don't have any horrible, horrible, tragic dirt stories about Keanu Reeves being a monster? I do. Isn't that weird? Sad, you know, I wish, right? I, nothing. He was. What a shame. He's he's really a nice guy. What a shame. I know. I, I get to hear. I, I don't think we'll ever, <laughs> Drew, I don't think we'll ever be able to squeeze I a know. nasty story know, about no Keanu. Dirt. About. Keanu's, Keanu's dirtless. Keanu is. Okay. I was the best. I was the luckiest actress. I'm sorry. Of all the actresses he's ever worked with, I got Ted. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. I got him to play Ted. He was so adorable and so cute as Ted. I'm sorry, but I got the best Keanu. He is, he's very, you know, and I think it's funny, and, and not, not to knock Mr. Cusack, but what I like about Keanu is 
he is the, a globally gigantic movie star, but he doesn't seem to judge or turn his nose down at his early stuff. No, because now he's thinking we're, he's actually going to do Bill and Ted's 3, which is... Yeah. And uh, why, we want you back. Why, we have to get Princess Joanna back in there. Oh, uh, you want me back? I'd love to be back. Oh, uh, we'll see. Keep your fingers crossed. Keep it on. I would, you'll hear me screaming. If I do come back, that would be a gift. If not, well, you know... It could just be, I could, I, how about this? We open on, you and, and Ted are married, and you're just completely, screw you. You're the worst husband. You are the worst father. <laughs> right? Exactly. Because yeah. Bill and Ted, what can you say, right? How fun uh, is that? <laughs> but I mean, yeah. like, aside from being in a good movie, D- uh, Diane, how does it feel like a year later when you look back and you're like, it was a small part, but an important part, and I was an important part of the biggest comedy of the year. That's got to feel good. Bill and Ted was Bill and Ted was a movie that I I think built that that's a movie with a tail and a half. Like, and true, true. One of these things. One of the things about all three of the the really iconic films that you were in in the eighties, Diane, whether it's Virgin or Better Off Dead or Bill and Ted, is these are movies where the tail on them has been very organic. It wasn't done by a company. It wasn't um, bought by anybody. It wasn't paid for on billboards. It was just genuinely people carried these movies with them. Better Off Dead is a movie that people adored when they saw it, that if they got it, they needed to share it with people. And Bill and Ted was the same way. Bill and Ted was one of those movies that I think had a sort of gentle landing And then just people never let it go away. Fans won't let it go away. And I love watching Ed Solomon play with people on Twitter. And I love that he kept every piece of paper, every napkin. So Ed's got it all, man. He's so so great. Well, here, first of all, all these projects were done with love. All of them. Okay. So that makes a big difference. Um, It's it's the director, writer, director's baby. Okay. So that's for sure. Um, The other thing is that... You know, for Bill and Ted, the message, be excellent to each other. People can pass that down to their kids. This is an important message. So I think Bill and Ted's has lived on because of that message, be excellent to each other. I think that Better Off Dead has has carried on because that was a movie where people, it it went quickly through the college uh, age kids because it was like, you know, all the haughty, you know, the fancy movies run TV, but when the VHS came out and the, you know, beta films, you could watch films at, uh, in your room. They could go on a date, like they could bring their date, and everyone could sit around and watch this film and make them laugh after they'd done all their homework for school. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm sick, I'm tired, I don't want to watch something heavy. I just want to have fun with my, with my college, you know, roommates and my friends. So that movie had a long life. And then Virgin is really... Um, it's that ending that will never go away, and it, it teaches lessons, life lessons, and it's, it's you know, sex education, and my God, we need it, you know? What can, can you, uh, what can you tell us about Stephen Herrick uh, as an 80s nut nerd? I, I was a fan of his because he made what I considered, like, novelty movies, and I don't mean that as a knock. I mean that as in they were novel. He first did Critters, and then Bill and Ted. He did Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, which is very funny. He did Mighty Ducks. He did, you know, lots of good stuff early in his career. And was he like, uh, I imagine that he was like a geeky filmmaker. He was funny. He was upbeat. Yeah, he was a good guy. I mean, when we worked together, he was very upbeat and fun. Um, I wish that he had been able to, I think, you know, had been able to uh, direct the second one. You know, I think he was just really um, just a, a sweet guy and we had a lot of fun. Um, again, he kept the tone of the film and I think he's just got good energy. So yeah. 
we we had I had no problems. And in fact, we had a great scene we did with uh, George Carlin at the oh. end of the film. And you know, he was there, and I know he loved George. George, you know, he was very respectful, and I think it was kind of hard because he's a young guy, and here comes George, and he's got all this experience, and he wanted to be very, um, he wanted to kind of give him direction, but at the same time, just be very, he was very respectful to him, so it's kind of like he didn't want to overstep his boundaries, and it was just really lovely. I mean, we were all, it was just very nice the way we all worked together. Do you have any, do you have any Carlin anecdotes? I know Drew and I, and I'm sure you absolutely adore the late George Carlin. Do you have any yeah, he's great. I, I don't have anything specific except for the fact that he was shockingly polite. Yeah. Shockingly nice. Like, and mannered. Oh, hello, Diane. Nice to meet you and holding my, you know, say pleasure to meet you. And like he's old school. Well, and I've always heard that he didn't consider himself to be anything special on a set as an actor because that wasn't his first career. Like, he came at it as, look, I'm here doing a job and I hope I do it well, but I'm certainly not the boss of anything. Yeah, no, he absolutely, I mean, I would say that's absolutely true, and when he, you know, it's so very different from his persona on stage, I think that's what was so shocking. Yeah, he owns that space. <laughs> he owns the stage. He says things, and you're just like, whoa, okay, uh, and so smart, just so, so smart. Here's one of those things where if you're a film fan, you construct narratives sometimes about movies, because you don't know the story of how something got made, you don't know what went on. As a film fan, I see how I got into college come out, and I see that it's it's got you, it's got Curtis Armstrong, it's Savage Steve Holland directing, and John Cusack's not it. And my first thought, and what I've carried since then was, wow, they must have had a falling out. There must be a reason he wasn't in it. Cut to me learning that it wasn't Savage Steve Holland's movie, that it was somebody else directing, and then Holland came on. So... Like, I had this whole other idea about this film that absolutely not correct. So now, uh, <laughs> Diane, I, I, I saw this, I think, how I got into college in theaters. I like it. I remember liking it. But I want to know, yeah. what, you, what was that one like? Well, first of all, I get this call from Savage saying, hey, would you like to be in my film? I'm doing a film. I'd like you to play the mom. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm too young to play the mom. Like, am I? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm And, of course, that's the joke. And. God, that was so funny. I have to say, when he told me that I was playing the role of the mom, I died. And it was so much fun to play. And uh, it was probably like one of those moments where um, it was, you know, great that everyone was in it. Um, but it was just funny for me to experience. I worked with Savage again, you know, like just it was great. And actually, I was in One Crazy Summer, but it was at the end and they had to cut me for time. Mm. Oh, you would have been three for three. Just kind of looking over and smiling at John at the end, but um, oh. pretty funny. It's you and Richard Jenkins in uh, How I Got Into College, correct? Yeah, he played my husband. I think people sometimes think of him more as the serious actor and the Oscar nominee that he obviously has become, but that guy is deadly funny. That guy is incredibly funny. He was so great to work with, too. And um, I think there was he has an element of John Cusack-ish, you know, in when we work together. He's very calm and he's very, like, sort of... You know, just just like kind of kind of calm about the whole thing about having an ex-wife that's much younger, and it's not a big deal. And it's just like <laughs> it just I always I always think that's kind of the funny uh, runner that idea. So I'm really looking another. I'm looking forward to. Uh, I know how I got into college uh, came and went. It didn't make a nickel in theaters, but I know that it's maybe not a cult film like Better Off Dead. But if you happen to bring up how I got into college, and the person you're talking to happens to have seen it you'll probably have a nice conversation because it's kind of a fun movie. And it's got, what, 
Brian Doyle Murray. It's got Philip Baker Hall, Lara Flynn Boyle, uh, uh, Nora Dunn, Phil Hartman, the late, I mean, it's got so, uh, the great, late, great Taylor Negron is in it. I- I'm looking forward to re- revisiting this one. Yeah, that film, I just have to say that film um, uh, is also the subject matter of how I got into college. And I think that film comes up in kids' lives at a certain point when they're looking about colleges. And they go, oh, what movie can I watch? You know, it's just a cool movie to say, okay, what is college life like? It's sort of, it's sort of a, as you get older, you know, like when you're younger, you know, you get, remember, oh, and now I'm going to watch horror films, and you spend your time doing horror. It's sort of like a rite of passage. And then you go through, oh, teen films, and okay, I'm going to watch this college film. It's sort of like it follows you as you grow up. So it's a, it's a good film to see if you're going to college. Well, we're, we're doing that. I'm, we're in that stage right now where my kids, I, I have a 13-year-old, and he is digesting the John Hughes library and digesting Better Off Dead was a huge one for him. Um, in fact, that was a birthday gift to him, the Blu-ray of that, because he was such a big fan. But it's thrilling to me to see these movies land for him. And to him, he looks at them the same way we did, which was, okay, I'm terrified. I need something that's going to kind of be a roadmap and just show me what's going to happen and what it's going to be like and tell me it's not going to be horrible. And That's why I think these movies are important because there's yeah. something like I want to be that person. You look at stuff and you say, you know, who am I in this story? Or who, what, would I make the same decision, you know? Yeah, and speaking of John Cusack, you know, our generation had a lot of movie role models to choose from, and there was a lot in the John Cusack persona, not entirely, but there was a lot in that persona that young men could be like, I like him. You know, he's he's noble, he's honest, he's a guy, he likes to party, he likes girls, but he's not a trash bag. I am you know, delighted not- to say that the biggest film for the the 13-year-old so far, Say Anything, and again, it's the decency that he seems to respond to. Right, because he's, because you know these kids are trying to be good good in the world. They're yeah. trying to be good kids, but they're up against a lot of things that you know that always constantly remind them that they have to make the decision. Who am I? Is based on if they agree or disagree to do something with their friends. Yeah. And what are they going to do? Right, and so it's kind of nice to see the leader. Like kids, you watch a movie and you see, oh, I like that person. That person is kind of the leader. And I want to be the leader, not the follower or, you know, it's, just, right. it's interesting. It's, and when a child, when a young person like Drew's son or a young girl picks an, a, a role model who you look at and go, that's a good role model. Lloyd yeah. Dobler is a good role model. Yeah. I, I approve. It's a relief. You go, good, good, good compass. Hold on to that one. I'm good. I'm good with that. That comes from the writing. And that's why it's so frustrating as an actor or an actress, because we are looking for those role models, too. And yeah. they weren't there. And when Better Off Dead came, boy, I cannot even begin to tell you. I was like, thank goodness. Here is a role model of a girl that I am so proud. Diane, before we go, um, just before we started recording, you mentioned Amadeus, a film that we just talked about and that Scott and I are both huge fans of. And you said you had some stories. So I'm really excited because I am freshly in love with the movie again. Oh, my God, what a film. All right. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Unbelievable. All right, so when I had finished um, Amityville 2, um, I get a call from my agent that they want to see me in New York to audition for Costanza in Amadeus. So I fly to New York, and um, when I go, um, actually, a little bit before that, um, I was, uh, when I actually was flying on a plane, I was sitting next to S. Murray Abraham. And F. Murray Abraham says, you know, he, we're in first class. I don't know who he is, okay? I am from, I'm like, 
you know, maybe 19 or something. And I, and he says to me, um, Oh, you know, it's funny. I have a script. I look over, it says Amadeus on his lap in the script. And I said, he said, you know, there's an actress, there's a role for you in the script. You'd be really right for this role. And I said, oh, that's very nice. Thank you. It's whatever. Um, and we didn't speak of it anymore. Cut to six months later when I get this call from my agent. Oh, they want to see you for Amadeus. And I'm like, okay. So I fly over to New York and I meet Milos Forman. And he says to me, um, Diane, you know, went to the audition, and I, I did what he wanted me to do. I did all the memorizing. We did a bunch of scenes. So then the next day, I get a callback. I go back. I go and do the callback. And they liked what I did. And then the next day, they said, okay, we are now going to uh, fly you to Czechoslovakia, um, and you are going to uh, either – it's going to be it's between you and another girl, and if you get the role, you're going to have to stay for six months. And if not, we're going to send you home. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So such a glamorous life, let me tell you. <laughs> and I now think of it in terms of I was 20 years old when this happened. 20. Yeah, that's real easy to plan. I fly by myself with Elizabeth Barrage, who's the other actress, oh. to Czechoslovakia with the producer Saul Sands. Um, I had heard that he was more interested in her and that Milos wanted me. I don't know if this is true, but that's what I was told. Then we get to, um, we get to the set, the set. I am put in full costume, hair, makeup, um, as if I'm shooting the movie. And we shoot every single scene and of the film in, as a screen test. And we finish it, both of us, at separate times. We go and do it with, with uh, Tommy Holtz, all right? When we're done, you know, Elizabeth and I are completely broken. I mean, it was exhausting. I mean, even though we were competing, it was still like we sat and had dinner together because we were so, it was like so insane. And no one else would understand it. Well, no, it was just like we were, so, it was so like the pressure was so huge. And we're sitting and having food. And as we're eating our one piece of lettuce, which probably cost $25 at the time because we were in Czechoslovakia and they didn't have a lot of great greens, <laughs> we're sitting there. Milos Forman walks over to our table and says, uh, Diane, Elizabeth, we're going to have to do this shoot again tomorrow, the whole thing over. We had a problem, uh, some of the footage of Elizabeth. Oh, my God. Okay, so I am flipping. I mean, we're both like, oh. So, like, we pull away from the table and, like, eat the finish the dinner really fast. I go to my room. I got knows whatever happened. I just went, I went right to my room, go to sleep, get set. Next day, auditioned all over again with all the same costume, makeup, everything. We're done with the audition. This is like the second day of the auditioning. Uh, Milos, and he sits, and Saul and Milos sit us down, Elizabeth and I, and they say, Diane, we have to give the part to Elizabeth. It's the look. And I went, oh, Okay. I mean, here's the, what's so funny about it is, you know, actors talk about the training and the training and all the studying and you do, and you sit there going, uh, there's nothing I can say about that. Right. No. So, so all I said, and this is the true to true to God, cause I was so exhausted. I had just come off finishing a movie that we called uh, summer girl. And I said, whatever is best for the film, whatever is best. Like, okay, like you made a decision. I know that you just make the best decision for the film. If she did a better job, then you know, God bless her and make her, you know, let her be the best for the film. So to me, I was, because I was like, so 
I had come off another film, I was like, okay, but I did cry. You know, I, obviously it was, it was so much, it was so much pressure and just so much. I just let down, like not there, but afterwards, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, and then I just, oh my gosh, I let it all out. And, and then when I pulled it together, I kept saying to myself, you know what? there's a reason for this. This is all good. And, you know, she's going to do a great job. And, um, I realized that had I gotten that film, I would never have gotten better off dead. I would never have done better off dead. And I would never have met my husband and had my two beautiful kids. Uh So what I'm saying to you is I'm glad I made the right decision. I really am. You know, and while, while, uh, while she is fantastic in the film, Elizabeth Barrage, um, I uh, I think you and her could have been sisters at the time, and I think you would have also done a phenomenal job. Well, thank you. I, I have to say that my what we were very different in our styles. We, I mean, I don't as actresses, our energy is so different. I am a very much more upbeat, and it's very I'm very light. You know, there's parts of me that are very like gentle, light, and she's you know there's a deeperness like sort of to her, and um, I think that. The qualities were so different, but we both were petite brunettes. So I do think that in that case, um, for us auditioning, um, you know, uh, originally um, Meg Tilly was supposed to do the role and she broke her leg. And that's yeah. why we came in the middle of production. So there could have been so many different um, costanzas. Hollywood history is written by leg breaks and mustaches you're not allowed to shave. Dugray Scott probably curses Mission Impossible 2 every day because of the Wolverine thing, you know. You never know. It just things happen and things move. And that process must have been insane. Now, they that was Barandov Studios, right? I've been to that studio. That that studio was built by the Czechoslovakian government before World War II. And then when the Nazis took Czechoslovakia, they took the studio. And during the war, they made propaganda up there. And so after the war, it sat empty for 20 years and there is still a section of that studio building, one of the buildings at Berendov, where they have film cans that were left behind that no one's ever gone through. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. But that's that studio. That is, it's one of the most historic, unbelievable studios in, in Europe. It's an amazing place to have worked there even for that. If you are interested in that story and more, I have, in my first book, which is called Diane Franklin, The Excellent Adventures of the Last American French Exchange Babe of the 80s. Yes, it's a very long title. Um, if you look up Diane Franklin's book, that story is in my first book. It will be picked up immediately. I think our listeners should rent uh, Amityville Murders and give Diane your support. I think you should go to Amazon and check out her books. And what is your Twitter handle again? Okay, Diane Franklin 80, no S on Twitter. Yeah. Um, Instagram, it's actress Diane Franklin. And Facebook, it's Diane Franklin fans. So I, I'm a very upbeat person. I think you're going to really enjoy connecting with me. This Wonderful. has been a wall to wall delight, Diane. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. So, merci buckets for having me on this show. Au revoir. <laughs>